Here we go. Roll video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmakers is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Hey everybody, welcome to Behind the Slate. I am your host, Aaron Strand. I want to thank everyone who listened to our Melvin Van People series, everyone who emailed, messaged, commented. I I really loved hearing from all of you. Um, I really want to thank our amazing guests who came on and shared their knowledge and experience. Artemis Jenkins, Christopher Seaving, Amy Abugo-Angiri, Millie DeChirico, Alfred Pricer, and Jonathan Braylock. All of you are amazing. Um... And it was just so great to talk to all of them. And you can support our show by supporting them. You know, follow them on social media, check out their work. They're just incredible artists, incredible scholars. And um, yeah, you know, that series, the Melvin Van People series, it really pushed me as a storyteller and a researcher. Um, in case you haven't heard me say this before, I am not an academic. I did not go to school for history. I did not ever study history. I've never taken a history course in my entire life. Uh, I am not a film historian. And uh, and so figuring out how to piece together the details of Melvin's life without a biography written was a huge challenge. But it was also really fun. I mean, I, I learned so much of how stories get told, like how biographies get told, like how, like when you have the power to actually make some editorial choices on which um, beats to emphasize, which angles to emphasize, you know, I felt I felt like this freedom, but also this incredible responsibility uh, to try and tell that story. And, you know, the series was also really humbling. You know, I didn't ever feel that it was totally appropriate to bring into the episodes that were happening. But you know, there was a lot of moments where I was questioning if I should even tell this story. Am I the person to tell this story? I mean, as you know, to, obviously, as this white guy, um, I had initially chosen Melvin Van Peebles as a subject because I knew that he had he was this shining example of an independent artist blazing his own path outside of corporate control. You know, that's what I knew of him. And I was totally ignorant, really, of how his work fit into the broader story of African-American representation in American entertainment. And it wasn't until I started researching uh, that I was just like, oh, shit, like, (laughs) this is actually the story. If I'm going to do this, then this is actually the story that I need to tell. And oh, my God, is that okay? (laughs) Am I I allowed to tell this story? and, uh, you know, look, like the irony of being a white guy telling the story about how white guys mostly fuck up and twist the stories of black people, you know, was not lost on me. OK. And um, yeah. And, and and at times I really questioned that. And it was it was kind of a struggle. But, you know, in the end, I just kept coming back to this idea that um, the it, this was history that I felt, you know, personally was important to learn. And, um, you know, just just for me. Um, and that surely there must be some other people out there that felt the same way. And, you know, given those just sort of things going on in my own brain, I was really humbled, um, by 
the response to the show um, as being really positive um, really meant a lot to me. And, um, and like, yeah, it just <laughs> it makes, makes me kind of emotional. I mean, outside of a few, few comments on TikTok, which I have come to discover is, you know, kind of a fucking cesspool. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> outside of that, the response was, was really, really positive. And to everyone who reached out and, um, who shared, who, who joined us for that story. Um, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Um, now we are now moving on to our next topic and, you know, the last seven months of this show, we have covered two great filmmakers in Charlie Chaplin and Melvin Van Peebles. I mean, two absolute titans of the art form whose influence over film, both as a medium and as a cultural institution, cannot be understated. And so I am thrilled to announce that our next filmmaker will be me. Okay, let me let me let me explain. Okay, so in addition to this podcast, I am a working filmmaker and I am currently in pre-production for my first feature-length film um, with a plan to start filming at the end of August. And this has been a goal that I've been working toward for a long time and it's honestly going to be the biggest challenge of my career. And given the workload involved with being the writer, director, lead producer, you know, I mean, look, this is a micro budget independent feature film like this is and it's my baby. So I'm kind of doing a lot here. So I will not have the time required to do all the historical research that I usually do for the history series. So I was left with a conundrum, you know, either I could abandon my dreams of becoming a filmmaker and just and just be a full-time podcaster, which was never going to happen. Um, so then I could either let this feed lie dormant for the next few months, um, or I could try to briefly transition this show from being about history's greatest directors to going behind the slate of my own film, Greatness TBD. Uh, <laughs> uh, so... I think what the plan is, is that I will be doing solo episodes talking about the film, uh, the story, how this project came to be, and then giving like, you know, weekly updates about the progress of like what we're working on this week. And uh, I will be interviewing members of the cast and crew and bringing in their perspectives and their stories and how how we're putting this group to came how this group of people came together to be. Um, I will also be inviting on the show other independent filmmakers and artists to share their knowledge and experience about you know making their passion projects and the obstacles that they've overcome. And it's my hope that. In doing this, that this series will serve, um, you know, both as sort of a window into the world of, you know, modern independent cinema, and also that it could become a kind of DIY guide for other filmmakers or even just other artists in different mediums about, you know, how do we go about creating our own work? You know, how do we, um, how do we, how do we find the motivation to keep going when everything's so hard? How do we? bring a team together how do we how do we budget for this sort of stuff you know how how do, how do we do that it's it's really hard and um, I mean you ask any independent filmmaker out there and you'll get um, you get totally different responses so obviously this will all be from the prism of my experience but 
that is my hope that this will become a living, breathing document of modern independent film. Now, if you're here for the history and this doesn't sound like your cup of tea, hey, I totally get it. And I promise you that I will be returning to the history content as soon as I am able. In fact, I already know the next two filmmakers that I'm going to be covering. So just keep checking back with us because that is and always will be the bread and butter of this show. Now, I'm not going to lie. This is <laughs> a little intimidating. Uh, it's uh, it's quite scary, actually. It's, it's scary. I mean, look, making a movie is scary enough. It is. Um, you know, and as we've seen in both the lives of Chaplin and Van Peebles, there are a million things that can go wrong. So to then share all that in real time and uh, open up about my own life and my own creative process and invite people into it, that's really fucking scary because I have absolutely no idea what is going to happen. I could fall flat on my face and it wouldn't be the first time. Um, and so the thought of doing that in front of an audience is, is uh, it doesn't, doesn't feel great. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I also think that, like, there's something that could be really valuable in that because, you know, the vast majority of art projects aren't smashing successes. What is even the definition of success? Is the definition of success, you know, winning the grand jury prize at Sundance and, you know, getting uh, uh, picked up by A24 as a distributor and all of a sudden you're on your way to, to indie film glory? Well, if that's a definition of success, I mean, <laughs> good luck to you. Um, and, you know, in this sense, I've been really personally inspired by Melvin Van Peebles, and particularly his book on making Sweetback. Now, granted, Sweetback did go on to have tremendous success and be a revolutionary film, but he was not only incredibly candid about his struggles on set, but it's important to remember that he wrote and released that book before Sweetback became a success. So part of me thinks that if Melvin was in his prime today, you know, making a podcast while making a film is something that he might do. And and so, you know, like I get a lot of inspiration for that. And so that's kind of like why I'm doing this. Ultimately, that is why I love biographies of filmmakers and why I even started this show in the first place, because they're so inspiring. I learn how to approach my own work by 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 reading about other people uh, and i probably would have not have uh, um you know i would not have attempted to do this project um had i not studied chaplin and van peebles so it all kind of works together and and it felt uh i felt a sense of responsibility to carry what i'm doing um into this podcast space so so i want to start off by taking you back and giving you some background of my own personal life story. Because let me tell you, it was not my initial intention to become a filmmaker. Um, I found this along the road and it feeds into the subject of my film. So I was born in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, both my parents were uh, university people. They were both entomologists uh, studying parasitic wasps, um, of all things. And, uh, you know, they were both really hardworking academics, and they gave me a nurturing childhood. My interest in art, you know, came out pretty early. Um, I ended up singing semi-professionally in, in the Madison Boy Choir uh, when I was like seven to ten years old. I was a soprano, if you can believe it or not. Um, and we toured across the Midwest and Ireland and Poland, and that's really where I got my first taste of performing and what it meant to, you know, uh, practice art as a discipline. 
and I loved it. Uh, as an only child, I gravitated towards movies as a source of companionship. I became, as I've mentioned on this show before, I became absolutely obsessed with the Japanese Godzilla movies. Um, and, you know, despite thinking that it was kind of weird, my parents and my grandmother uh, were really uh, willing to indulge my many, many trips to the video store where I would uh, track down, you know, the harder to find kaiju titles, um, <laughs> which uh, I guess is really my, like, introduction into like cinephilehood because you know i was going into the weird sections of the video stores um sometimes the cult sections and as i searched for my godzilla movies you know i'd see the covers of other uh vhs tapes um that i would later you know come to learn were you know like um like pink flamingos or like <laughs> some other film like that um so my dad he accepted a job at the University of Georgia in Athens in 2001. And we moved to Athens in December of that year. And that was really hard for me because in my new school, I was now the, I, I, was, I was born in Wisconsin, okay? Like I had a really weird Northern accent, you know? I can't, I don't even know if I can do it anymore. Let me see. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it was like straight out of the, if you remember the cartoon Bobby's World. So like, um, Oh, Bob, you know, oh, Bobby, I, ha I was the weird kid with the northern accent, you know, and I'd show up and be like, oh, yeah, like you guys, I would say oh, I said the word both. Um, shout out to all my upper Midwesterners um, and, you know, saying both and bubbler. So anyway, so not only was I the weird northern kid in this southern school, but I also started in the school after winter break. So I was like the weird northern kid who just showed up after winter break one one year. Maybe we were all still processing 9-11 um, or, you know, maybe just middle school sucks ass. I don't know. But it was it was really hard. And so that was really kind of when I started to really lean into my teenage angst. Um, I grew my hair long. I started playing guitar and I spent a lot of hours watching TCM, um, just wishing I lived in any other time, but my own, um, <laughs> you know, by the time I entered high school, that escapism found its true calling in the simultaneous discovery of theater and drugs. Um, so you know, I crafted a completely original and totally unique high school identity around being the artsy, druggy kid, you know, effortlessly projecting an aura of mystery and, dare I say, danger as I flagrantly smoked pot uh, and drank beer and ate psychedelics while listening to a never-ending loop of Led Zeppelin. Um, yeah, don't worry. My wife, uh, who w went to middle school and high school and college with me, but who was actually dating my best friend at the time, she really never misses an opportunity to tease me about this. So, uh, uh, it, it, so don't worry. I, I get plenty of razzing uh, for this, for these, uh, for these, uh, for these aesthetic choices, uh, which is fine because she was also a total nerd. Um, but anyway, uh, by junior year of high school, my friends and I started taking prescription painkillers. And it was 2005, like 2006. And although it had already been building for a decade, you know, we never even heard the words opioid epidemic before. Um, I think that they, they usually say around 1995, which I think is the year that Purdue Pharma started aggressively marketing Oxycontin um, as sort of the beginning of the opioid epidemic. But uh, we'd never heard of it. Um, 
And to me, the pills were an answer for everything. I mean, they didn't smell, you know, like pot did. So you could literally take them in the middle of class, uh, which I did frequently. And more importantly, they relieved all of my teenage angst. They relieved all the pain and worry and all that just ennui of being a kid. And they allowed me to live in a fantasy world where I got to feel like a fucking rock star while being stuck in my small southern town. Um, And I remember very distinctly a decision, making a decision that was like, I want to feel like this all the time. Um, I don't want to spend a minute not on this stuff. And so that was my goal. Um, I managed to incorporate almost near constant drug use into my um, scholastic and artistic pursuits. And, um, and I kind of made, seemed to make it work, you know, and that seemed to be further evidence that like everything I'd been told about drugs was a lie, you know? Oh, I thought I was, I thought if you did drugs, like you ended up, you know, homeless under a bridge. Uh, but like, I just, you know, I just got this score on my SATs and I <laughs> took this many Percocets before the test. And so clearly like everything I was told was, was not true. I'm crushing it. And, um, I, I did pretty well in school and eventually I auditioned and got accepted into the drama department of NYU, uh, which was a huge honor, um, that I definitely tried to act like way too cool for, um, but, uh, but it was a huge deal. And, uh, but I moved to New York in August 2007, and I was convinced, I was convinced to the core of me that I would never step foot in that small bullshit town of Athens, Georgia ever again. Well, I, uh, I attended the Stella Adler Studio of Acting in New York, and um, which is like NYU d- divides their drama department where they send kids to these various studios conservatories in the city and um and i loved it i mean i i i was all in on acting you know i had done all the plays in high school and um was really into it i loved like the i loved like the mythos of 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 marlon brando and these um method actors and oh my god they suffered so much for their art and i was you know i i was i was lapping that kind of stuff up um and i wanted to be uh yeah i wanted to be a tortured a tortured genius. Um, um, but when I first got to school, I took it really seriously. In fact, I, I actively did not drink or, or do drugs for the entire first semester of college. And I, you know, I thought for myself that it was like, oh, this is the big time. This is the big city. You know, I, I don't want I wanted to leave all that kind of like, stu- I don't need that stuff here because here I can be the person that I was like pretending to be back home. Um, but I think really actually deep down, like I knew already that this was a problem and, um, and that I had a problem, um, even though I couldn't quite admit it in that way. You know, I was so obsessed with leaving that small town behind, but uh, smallness has a way of following you no matter where you go. And pretty soon, my studio was too small. And, you know, my teachers didn't understand. And, you know, why are we just going through these exercises, you know, in a classroom? You know, I want to be out there. I want to be working. I'm ready. I'm ready. 
I want to I want to be in you know I want to be in the spotlight. So Alfred Pricer, who was a guest, you know, or a few shows ago, he gave me that opportunity. He cast me in two plays, uh, one of which was at uh, La Mama Experimental Theater Company um, down on uh, down in the East Village, um, and that got a, a bunch of press, um, which was great. And he then cast me again in The Man Who Ate Michael Rockefeller, which performed um, in two theaters uh, off Broadway and was had a big write-up in the New York Times. And all of a sudden, you know, I was joining Actors' Equity. I was a member of the union. I was getting these write-ups. I got a manager. I started going on big auditions for Broadway shows. And I wasn't even 20 years old. And yet that wasn't enough. I pretty soon, you know, after a few months of auditioning and and going around, you know, the theater scene was just, it just felt so stuffy. It was just so out of touch. You know, I wanted something real and immediate. You know, I think the truth was, is that the life of an actor is incredibly unglamorous, you know, grinding out auditions and just being met with a sea of rejection um, is, you know, it, it doesn't feel like being a rock star. Let me tell you that. Um and I thought I was owed that, I guess. I thought I deserved that. I wanted more, you know? And, and more than anything, I wanted to be cool, um, whatever, whatever that meant at the time. And right around then was when I first went to The Box. Now, The Box was like basically the coolest nightclub uh, in New York City, maybe, maybe the world. It was created by Simon Hammerstein, the uh, grandson of Oscar Hammerstein II, you know, as in Rodgers and Hammerstein, Sound of Music, Oklahoma, Carousel, South Pacific, you know, the guys who created the modern musical. And uh, Simon was a sort of enfant terrible um, who combined his love of hard partying with his theatrical birthright and created this space, this, this club that was really unlike anything else. Um, you know, first of all, it was super exclusive. You, you had to know somebody or be ready to pay a huge amount of money just to get inside. And once you did, you were immersed in this space that was designed like a 1920s speakeasy. And there was all the usual, you know, Manhattan nightclub stuff, bottle service, dancing, club, club shit. Um, but what made the box extraordinary was that at 1.30 a.m., Everyone would be forced to sit down, the lights would, would come down, and all of a sudden this variety show, this show that was unlike anything else in the world, would explode out of the stage. And there, in front of you, you would see everything from naked dancing girls, to world-class singers, to high-flying circus performers, to extreme sex acts that, you know, that might involve multiple objects being inserted into a performer's body cavity. Uh, and it was like seeing all of your fantasies come alive in real life. And what was so incredible was that once the show ended, and the, the first act lasted about 30 minutes, you know, at a normal play, what, you you, you leave and you, you go home, you just go to a, a fucking coffee shop with your friends and talk about how the show was or whatever. But at the box, the first show ends and the party gets even better. All of a sudden, the people watching the show are thinking somewhere deep down in their subconscious, they're thinking, 
oh shit, maybe I could do that. And all of a sudden, the walls between the party guests start to dissolve and people start to mingle and, and then they start to go harder and they do more drugs and they start having sex in the bathroom or having sex out in the club. And, and then the second show would happen at 2.30 and, and then it would get even more intense. And by 3 a.m., the whole building felt it was like a fucking train that was about to run off the track. To this day, it's the most powerful theater I have ever seen because it actually had an immediate and tangible effect on the audience's minds and behavior. It lowered their inhibitions. It pushed them outside of their comfort zones. It said to them, you can be more than what you are. And from the first time that I went, I just thought, this is the place that I have to be. And so I did what I had to, uh, and got hired to work on the stage crew. Right? Working at the box every night was like the ultimate expression of the theater and drugs lifestyle that I had first adopted in high school. Um, I felt like I was a part of an exclusive secret underground of artists and sex workers who rubbed elbows with celebrities and, and, and the super rich. And I mean, there's no other way to say it. Like I felt cool, you know, now that's all the sort of like superficial, you know, side of things, the, the ego, the status, like whatever, like it, it, it's kind of lame how cool I thought it was. What was actually, what was actually cool and was that I got to watch Simon and the many other incredible artists ply their craft on a daily basis. I mean, Rosewood, Raven O, Kenichi Ibina, Rudy Mikaji, Narcissister, Julietless Muse, Trixie Little and the Evil Hate Monkey, Anya Sapoznikova, Buck Angel. I mean, just to name a few, I got to watch and learn from them all. And the biggest lesson that I learned was that the true power of the stage show at the box and what made it different from any other burlesque or circus show that you might see was that every performance had a story. Each performer had to create a character. And, and no matter if they were flying on the trapeze or, or sticking a beer bottle up their ass, it had to be motivated by the character's needs. And, and, and look, this is stuff you would learn in like Drama 101, but it's actually really hard to put into practice. And most burlesque and circus performance is completely devoid of this quality. You know, it's all, it's just pure spectacle. It's just this, you know, I'm up on stage and the reason I'm up on stage is that I'm on stage and I'm, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm shaking my butt and taking my clothes off or I'm, you know, uh, uh, juggling fire and like, that's just that. The box's true revolutionary quality was, it said pure spectacle was not enough. We have to have story. We have to have character. And I'm convinced to this day that that's what made the show so powerful. That's why the show worked on people the way that it did. But while I finally felt like I had arrived at cool theater heaven, the box also provided me with access to money and an unlimited supply of drugs and alcohol. And uh, let's just say I never said no. Um, <laughs> I, I barely finished my last year of college. Um, when I did show up, I, it was on no sleep. I was usually still drunk from the night before. 
and I was just coked to the gills, just trying to keep my eyes open. Um, cocaine was like the main party drug at the time. Um, but I almost immediately com- started combining it with my old friend, prescription opioids, uh, to help with the come down. And then because mixing Coke and opioids feels awesome. Um, and, uh, pretty soon I, I was just, that was just how I was living. Um, I stopped making it to auditions. They were too early in the morning. And what was the point? You know, I was just going to get rejected anyway. At the box, I got to walk past the lines while everyone else got rejected, you know? Carrots and sticks. The next few years are kind of a blur. Honestly, this time period, it was a lot of activity. There was a lot of chaos. There was always some disaster and some action going on, but there a lot, nothing was happening. Uh, I was just spinning my wheels and I was really going nowhere except, you know, back to the drug dealer with uh, ever increasing amounts of money. The drugs that I was using got harder and harder. Um, I started experimenting with different ways to use them. Um, uh, I, I, tr- I played a game in my head that um, as long as I wasn't shooting up, uh, I wasn't a junkie. And I tried to keep that going for as long as possible. Um, Everything I said I would never do, I eventually did. Things came to a point where I was cut off from any supply of money. And I was facing eviction from the place that I was living. And I had 24 hours to figure out what to do. Um, I had entertained the notion of contacting a doctor with the hopes of getting on a drug called Suboxone. That's the brand name. Um, the actual drug in it is called buprenorphine. And this is a drug that can, um, alleviate the worst symptoms of dope withdrawal. Um, I went to this doctor and he explained that there is another ingredient in this pill called naloxone. And this is an opioid agonist this drug binds with any opioids in your system and basically immediately sends you into the worst withdrawal of your life. The idea being that if you shoot heroin while taking Suboxone, you're going to really pay for that decision. Now, the doctor told me that as long as I had any dope in my system, which I definitely did, he would not prescribe me the pill. Instead, I would have to go 12 hours without using and come back to him the following morning. And keep in mind, I could not go two hours at this point without becoming a shivering, shaking wreck. So the thought of going 12 hours without any opioid was basically unthinkable. Um, But without any other option, it's what I did. I went to the doctor the next morning and got the medicine. It was like a miracle. Relieved all the symptoms uh, in almost 60 seconds. Um, In that moment... I felt like the worst was over. Little did I know, it was just beginning. Um, I ended up getting kicked out of the apartment. And from that point on, I was homeless in New York City. And I couch surfed for a while. Um, a lot of people, understandably, did not want me around. You know, I was a, I was a fucking junkie. I had no job. I had no direction. I had no purpose. I was just a mooch. Um, I, I still desperately wanted to be successful and was concocting various plans in my head of how to do that. I could not conceive, I could not see reality 
of just how much of a fuck up I really was. Um, I even spent a few nights with my now wife, um, who was living in Brooklyn at the time. And even though we had grown up together and that she had, she'd been, she at that point, she was my oldest friend. Um, but I was too ashamed to tell her what was really going on. You know, I made up some lie about, you know, having, having trouble with whatever. And, um, and that was that I was, I was too ashamed. Um, when I couldn't find a place to stay, I would go out to the box and like party until the club closed. And then I would go sleep on a park bench. Um, there was a, 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 a grate next to an NYU building that pumped out warm air, um, that I would sometimes sleep on. Um, it was now November and going into December, New York was getting quite cold. Um, NYU also, the second you graduate, they lock you out of all their buildings and don't let you in. Um, so, so it was pretty pathetic, you know, sleeping on that, um, on that air exhaust grate outside of an NYU building. Um, when just a year earlier, I was taking classes in that building. A lot of times I would still be wearing the old tattered designer clothes that I had bought back when I first started at the club, you know, sleeping outside in a sweat stained, tattered Armani shirt. Um, it just was absurd. <laughs> I was, I was a clown. Um, months passed like this. Um, I stayed on the Suboxone knowing that if I went back to pills or, or heroin that I wouldn't be able to afford it. I made it through Christmas, but after Christmas, New York was becoming really cold. And when you have no money and nowhere to go, it feels like the absolute loneliest place on earth. Um, and so I finally ended up calling my parents, whom I had actively pushed away for years. Uh, you know, they knew something was wrong, but they didn't know exactly what was going on. But, uh, you know, I had been treating them terribly, um, terribly. Uh, well, I called them and asked for help and asked for, well, <laughs> I called them and I asked for a ticket home. Now, I just because I wasn't doing opiates doesn't mean I wasn't doing other drugs. I still had some pot and some acid on me. And so uh, to avoid airport security, I bought a train ticket. And on New Year's Eve 2012, I got on a 16-hour train ride from New York to Georgia. Uh, before I knew it, I was back in my childhood bedroom. It was the place that I had first learned how to use drugs. It was the place that I had sworn I would never come back to. And that's when it really hit me of just how much I had failed. Um, after a few days, I was running out of Suboxone. I wasn't sure what to do. Um, uh, you know, the drug only works as long as you keep taking it. The second you stop, you're going to go through the withdrawal that you, you put off. Um, and even though I was still kind of drinking and using other substances, I started attending a couple of 12 step recovery meetings with some vague notion that like maybe drugs were like sort of like not great for me. Um, and it was there that I heard someone suggest that if you're not sure about whether you're not, you're an addict or an alcoholic, why don't you go out and just try some controlled drinking? Why don't you have two drinks and then stop? And if that's easy for you, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe you don't have a problem. So I called an old buddy from high school and we go out to this place in Athens called Nowhere Bar. 
And uh, I told him that I, that I was going to do this experiment, that this was really important. You know, this was the night where I was going to decide whether or not I was an alcoholic and whether I need to change everything about myself. And this was really important what we were about to do. Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay, let's do this. And so I go up to the bar and I get a beer and I drink it. Okay, everything's fine. You know, I was drinking a lot in those days, so I could put away a beer like nothing. So I got another beer. Okay, well, no problem. No problem. Cut to 15 drinks later, I'm swerving down the road, dropping my friend off at his house. I drive drunk to my parents' house, and I sneak in through the door, and I, you know, I carefully open the door not to make a sound, just like I used to do back in high school, and, and, I, and I tiptoe inside, and I close the door carefully, ever so carefully, and as that door latch snapped into place, all of a sudden I realized, oh, fuck the experiment. I forgot. I had literally forgotten completely about my two drink minimum. And that was it. That's when it dawned on me that I had a problem. I remember going up to my bedroom and laying on my bed and the room was spinning and I got sick and, and I just started crying in the toilet uh, because I knew that it would never get better. And the next day, I went to a 12-step meeting, and I asked someone for help, and um, that was the last drink that I that I ever had. Um, a couple days after that, I told my parents the truth. They were understandably devastated, um, but January 12th, 2013 was, um, yeah, that was my last day uh, drinking or, or using any drugs, and um it was a hard, <laughs> no, pun, no pun intended, I guess. It was a hard pill to swallow um, because I, I basically had to admit to myself just, um, just how bad I had fucked up. And I had to start rebuilding my life from scratch. And let me tell you, it sucked, okay? I was, I was 23 years old. I felt like I had missed my shot. You know, I could not wrap my mind around the fact that just three years earlier, I was going on auditions for like major Broadway plays, you know, spending my nights partying with celebrities in the coolest nightclub on earth. And now all of a sudden I was getting sober at my parents' house in Athens fucking Georgia, the place I never wanted to come back to. But hey, that's life. Now, look, I... I, I I feel a little crunchy right now because like I get it like I th there's a lot of privilege in this story I mean like my parents were around and they were willing and able to help me and they had a stable home for me to come home to I and like I get that there's millions upon millions of people that have it way tougher than I did I I'm not trying to convince you that this is like some great tragedy or that I'm like the yeah some tragic figure I mean you know I think it felt like a huge tragedy to me at the time but that's much more farce uh, than tragedy. And anyway, so I, I don't really, you know, during this time, I don't know what to do with myself. You know, getting high had been a full-time job for like the previous nine years, basically. And now I'm sitting here and my brain is like fucking jello. Um, if anyone listening to this has ever gone through it, then you also know that every emotion you'd ever drowned with chemicals now just comes roaring back. So I was like a, a formless, substanceless live wire, and I, like, I didn't know what to do with it. Um, so yeah, I think it was the second week of, um, 
of of doing this of getting of being sober that i got an old laptop it was like from the early 2000s and literally only microsoft word worked on this thing um and i opened up a word document and i just started writing and this was like kind of a big thing for me because uh my dad is a pretty amazing writer i mean he's a science writer but still he's he's really talented and he would help me write my essays in high school and I always felt like I couldn't do it you know without him and that I was so inferior to him and then I also even had a girlfriend once who who told me I couldn't write and I think she was just saying it to like put me down and feel better about herself but still I had this mental inhibition I was had told myself that I couldn't do it um but I had to do something and so I I wrote and that little bit of writing grew and it turned into a piece of drama. All of a sudden there were characters, you know, talking to each other and and it became a play uh, that was loosely based on my time at the box. And I wrote every day for hours and hours and, and it literally felt like I was flying. I mean, it was within a week, I had about 160 pages of dialogue. Um, now, I have gone back and reread this and it is like absolute dog water, man. I mean, it is, it is really bad. Maybe, maybe my ex was right, but um, no, the point is, is that in doing this for the first time in years, I felt hope and I kept following that hope and I tried acting a little bit again. It was at a, in a community theater production of Into the Woods, um, uh, which certainly felt a long way from Broadway. But you know what? It was fun. I was having fun. Um, and then I picked up a DSLR camera that belonged to my mother. And I started just filming things around town and uh, filming the people that, that I saw, filming uh, insects and, and, and landscapes and and it kind of was all coming together and i made the decision then and there that i was going to learn every aspect of film and drama i was going to teach myself how to write i was going to teach myself how to work a camera and i was going to become an independent filmmaker and i thought you know worst case scenario i jump into this and in you know in like 2 3 years i'll have a film you know, and by then I'd be 26 and, you know, then I'd probably end up on one of those like 30 under 30 lists and like everything would be great. Well, 10 years later, you know, I'm 33, about to be 34, and I am in pre-production for my very first feature film, which is called Withdrawal. Um, and I will be getting more into the plot uh, of this film on the next episode. Now, look, I think it's probably pretty clear. Like I kind of try to laugh at a lot of these moments, you know, and it were inevitably at the time I was taking myself way too seriously. I share all this. Number one, uh, it's just my story and I really can't like change it. Number two, there are millions of people out there struggling with addiction. I get it. And you know, if you're, somebody who is struggling with substance use or you know someone who is, I mean, you are not alone and it does not have to be a death sentence. And, you know, it's always bothered me that a lot of people seem to only open up about their struggles and get honest once they've achieved a certain level of success that they feel gives them permission to do so. And I think that that's total bullshit. 
You know, I haven't come close to achieving my goals, um, but that shouldn't prevent me, I don't think, from just being honest about the things I've experienced. And that kind of brings me to one of the core principles that is guiding this project. And that is that we are not going to pretend to be anybody that we're not. So often in the film world, in the art world, or maybe this is just in the world in general, I feel like I'm surrounded by people pretending to be bigger, smarter, more powerful, uh, 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 more more like a hot commodity than they are. And I think they're attempting some version of, of like fake it till you make it. But I, it's also like a totally gross misunderstanding of the phrase. Fake it till you make it to me just means you say, I am a filmmaker before you've actually made a film. It doesn't mean you have to be a total dick about it. You know, that was a mistake that I made for most of my life. In high school, in college, in acting, I was always, even working at the box, I was always faking it, trying to be, you know, cooler, more successful than I was. But it was really all based on the fact that I was so deeply unhappy with myself and uncomfortable with, with, with who I was and where I was and nothing was ever good enough. Um, and, and you then start taking that out on other people. And, you know, that also means that being a dick is a part of your vision of what success means. I mean, if being a dick is somehow a part of what you think a filmmaker is or a boss is or whatever, you might want to take a look at that because uh, that's like total bullshit. <laughs> I don't know. Like, don't be a dick. Um, look, I don't want to pretend to be anything else. I'm a 33-year-old dad, former drug addict, alcoholic, making his first feature film and hosting a podcast. <laughs> Nothing more nothing less. Uh, that's it. So now that you know a little bit more about me, uh, if you want to join me on this journey, I would love to take you along as we will be getting more into the story of the film, uh, the vision of what we hope to achieve, and these principles that I hope will guide this production and, and try to lead us on the right track, you know, when we have to make tough decisions. And so I, I hope you'll come back and uh, join me and the rest of the team on this journey. Thank you so much. Behind the Slate is an official podcast of the Arroyo Film Club. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. If you have any questions, comments, or you just want to say hi, you can shoot me an email at behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. That's behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram at Behind the Slate Pod, on TikTok at Behind the Slate Pod, on Twitter at Behind the Slate underscore. And until next time, that is a wrap. Early in the morning, still late at night to me. The party crashed and it felt like trash being hosed into the street. My closing song's been scrapped or pawned. And my phone had long been dead The hard rain had come and gone And the aftermath was in my head No matter what I say